0: Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 3. And this section from verses 8 through 22 we'll be looking at in the next several weeks. But for this morning we'll just be looking at verses 8 through 12. So that's what I'll read from. Give attention to the reading of God's word from 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life, Last month, I referred to one of the earliest Christian writings that we have today, dated to the second century. It's from an anonymous Christian, and he's writing to someone he knows named Diognetus. And this is what he writes in one part of the letter. The Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead an eccentric way of life. But living in Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as a lot of each of them has been determined, and following the local customs with respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly, excuse me, striking way of life their wonderful and confessedly striking way of life. So you see what he's saying. He's saying Christians, they live in cities just like everybody else. They eat and drink just as everyone else does. They, they take wives, they have jobs as everyone else does, but they, what distinguishes them is a wonderful and striking way of life. And when we say that someone has a striking appearance, it's someone who, who turns heads, someone that makes you take notice And the Apostle Peter, beginning in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 of this letter, he's been instructing Christians about how to have a striking way of life. To live in such a way that that turns people's heads. To live in such a way as a Christian that makes people take notice. And he goes on to give several areas of life in which we're to be striking. He talks about being citizens in government. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17... He goes on in verses 18 through 25 to talk about being striking as employers in the workplace, in our jobs. A couple weeks ago from chapter three, we heard how to be striking as wives and husbands in the home. And having addressed all these different groups here, he's gonna come together to address the whole Christian community, all of you, the whole Christian community. And he tells us how to have a striking way of life in our relationships, in our relationships. How we're to have a striking way of life in our relationships, both our relationships with one another as fellow believers in the church and also in our relationships with unbelievers, those who are not in the church. So first, let's look. How can we have a striking way of life in our relationships with one another as believers? Verse eight. Finally, all of you have Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. I'm excited that the NBA professional basketball playoffs are coming up, and I realize I'm probably one of the few in this room that's actually excited about that. But just forgive me for the illustration. When you watch the best teams play when they get to the playoffs there are things they do on the court that are striking. They make you turn your head. They make you stand up and take notice. You have the ferocious dunks, and you have the three-point barrages, and you have the, the brilliant passes in team play. You have the buzzer beaters. You have the thrilling comebacks, and, and it's exciting. But if you really listen to the players and the coaches on these best teams, what you'll notice them doing is they don't talk so much about what the teams are doing on the court as being the key to their success. Although they do, of course, you find them time and time and time again talking about the culture of the team off the court that leads to their success. They're talking about the relationships that the teammates have with one another, about how they all went out to dinner the night before the game or something like that. They're talking about the respect that they have for the coaching staff. They're talking about how this team is able to lay their egos aside and, and work together towards a common goal and not worry about all the individual stats. It, it's the culture of the team off the court that enables their success on the court. Talent helps too. But the culture off the court that, that leads to their success on the court. So often, when we think about our witness to the world as the church, we we immediately go to on the court, so to speak. We think about what we need to be doing out in the world. And we should. But we also need to be thinking about, and perhaps first need to be thinking about, our relationships with one another. The the culture of the church that contributes to that. The Bible says this is what's really going to turn heads. This is what is going to make people stop and take notice this is what's going to be striking not your worship experiences not not all the volunteers that you have what's going to be striking what's going to turn people's heads what's going to make people stand up and take notice is your relationships with one another jesus says this in john chapter 13 verse 35 by this all people will know that you are my disciples if How are all people going to know that you are my disciples, that you belong to Jesus, if you have love for one another? Love for one another, our relationships with one another, that culture of the church, and so Peter lists five of these attitudes we're to have in our relationships with one another in verse eight. What what's a healthy church culture? Peter gives us five in verse eight: unity of mind, sympathy. Brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. So let's just look at these briefly. Unity of mind. Unity of mind is not so much unity in the sense of intellectual agreement, but attitudinal agreement, if you will. It's a mindset. It's like-mindedness. Because obviously not everyone is alike in our gifts, and in our interests, and in our personalities, and our ministries. But it's the like-mindedness to channel all of those different gifts and interests and personalities and ministries into to the same attitude of service to one another. I think about a symphony orchestra. So everyone has a different instrument to play. You don't have uh, 50 tubas or something in the symphony orchestra. Everybody has a different instrument to play. And each instrument plays its distinct notes, each instrument has its part to play. And when each instrument plays its own part, but in concert with the other instruments, in the same tempo, the same style, under the direction of the the conductor, they unite together to create that beautiful music that moves us and thrills us. Or I think about the Apostle Paul's image of the, the body of Christ. Each member of the body serves a different purpose The eye is the one that sees, the ear is the one that hears, the hands are the ones that that get out there, the the feet are the one that walk, and so on and so forth. Each member of the body serves a different function, but they're all needed to contribute to the health of the body. Unity of mind, like-mindedness. Secondly, sympathy. Archie reminded of this earlier. Sympathy is a readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. Because again, Paul says we're members of one body, and if a hand or a foot or a finger or a toe or whatever it is hurts, the whole body is affected. The health of the whole body is affected. When one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. So when God the Father by his mercy, calls you to be his child through Jesus Christ. He also brings you into a relationship with his other children, which make them your brothers and sisters. And so he brings you into a family, which means that we now have family obligations to one another. Nothing brings me more joy as a father to see my daughters in the best way they know how at this point but to see my daughters loving one another. It's beautiful. I love it. When Penny sings a lullaby to Clementine or shares her toys or tells her that she loves her and and Clementine will reach out her hand to Penny and grab her hand or just give her a smile or talk to her. I love it to see my, my daughters just laughing and making noise together. They're loving one another in the best way they know how. And I imagine that not many things make our heavenly father Happier than seeing his children in the best way we know how sometimes we're not very good at it But in the best way we know how to love one another to sing praises With one another to share testimonies of graces. We've heard this morning to share meals together to share our homes together Our lives encouraging one another reaching out to spend time with one another not giving up on one another What happiness that must bring to our father's heart? brotherly love next a tender heart Or compassion. Uh, This word, tender heart or compassion, strange to say, but it actually refers to a person's inner organs. And that may sound strange, but we still do the same thing today. The Greeks used the inner organs to refer to courage. And that's how we use it today, is it not? We say that takes guts, right? That's the word, guts. And the Greeks, as we still do today, connected it with courage. But in the Bible, the Bible takes that inner organs word, that guts word, and transforms it from courage to compassion. That's the guts in the Bible is compassion, tenderheartedness. If you read the old King James version of the Bible, it's, it's pretty interesting. Some, not here, but other places, you'll see it translated bowels of mercy, so try to slip that in one of your conversations this week. <laughs> I appreciate it, brother, for showing me those bowels of mercy. That was so encouraging to me. But you see what it's getting at. It's a compassion that comes from deep within you. That's the point. It's, it's a river of love flowing from deep within you that overflows into meeting the needs of others. And so it's no surprise that this word is used dozens of times in the Gospels for Jesus himself to describe the compassion of Jesus, the tenderheartedness of Jesus, the river of love deep within Jesus that overflowed to cause him to meet the needs of those he encountered. He has compassion for the hungry, And it overflows into meeting their need to feed them. He has compassion for the blind and he restores their sight. He has compassion for the deaf and he restores their hearing. He has compassion for the lame and he causes them to walk again. He has compassion for a widow's son who dies and he raises that son from the dead. Over and over and over again, the compassion of Jesus, that river of love flowing from deep within him that moved him, that overflowed to meet the needs of others. This is affection, that overflows into action. I think when we talk about love, we can talk about both. There is affection in love, is there not? We're called to have affection for one another, but that affection has got to overflow into action. It's both, tender heart or compassion or bowels of mercy, if you prefer. So fifth, a humble mind. And then we come back full circle. You see, he started with unity of mind and now he's ending with a humble mind. So how do we cultivate unity? How do we play that beautiful music in the symphony? How do we cultivate the health of the body? How do we get that unity? It's through humility. So think about the symphony orchestra. If you arrive before the concert starts, you'll hear all the members of the symphony kind of warming up and playing those I assume, Rebecca, you're playing difficult passages that that you want to refresh your memory on, or just warming up, playing different things, but every instrument's doing it on their own, right? And it's just kind of this cacophony, this noise. But then when the conductor comes out, then it's time to start the concert, and everybody plays the music. Uh, But imagine if the conductor stepped out on the stage and had his or her baton and was ready to start the concert and every single instrument just kept playing on their own, just kept playing those difficult spots and it was just a cacophony the whole night. It was just noise. You want your money back. It's not beautiful music. And sometimes if we're honest, that's how we can play our instruments in the church, is it not? Every instrument is important, but sometimes we can make our instrument too important when we play without listening to others, when we play our part too loudly and it doesn't fit into the music, or, or we play without heeding direction and play at our own tempo, when that happens, there's no music. There's just noise. Again, think about the body of Christ's imagery. If the body of Christ is to be healthy, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The head to the feet, I have no need of you. We all need one another. A humble mind is how we have unity of mind. And I just want to make one specific application, and I hesitated on whether to do this or not, but I'm going to do it anyway. This church is in a time of transition. We're transitioning to a new senior pastor. And what an especially important time to be reminded of the need for this like mindedness through humility. The elders have asked you to turn in those church profile forms where you pick a handful of things out of a list of 20 to say, this is what I feel is important to our church. This is what I feel is important to uh, what we should be looking for in a pastor. And I guarantee you, I, I could be wrong, but I, I can almost guarantee you, if you took that box of forms, if you dumped that, those forms out, if you looked through all of them, what would you find? Not a single one would be the same. Everybody has different things they think are important. Everybody has different things they should be looking, that, that we should be looking for, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the point is we all have different ideas. We all have different interests. We all have different things that are important to us, but is there a like-mindedness? Is there a humility to listen to the ideas of others, to consider the interests of others as well as your own, to think of what others might think is important and to think of them as more important than yourself. It may sound silly, but I've heard of churches that have fallen apart because of the color of the carpets. I know, it sounds silly, but it's true. I mean, it's sad, but it's true. So, the point is, this is just an important time. Like-mindedness, humility, humility as we make this transition. I'm confident that you all will have that attitude because you've shown it so much in the past. So I'm very thankful. We've heard some of it today. I'm thankful for the beautiful music that's played in this congregation, for the health of the body of Christ here, for the healthy culture we have. So let's just, let's keep it up. Let's keep it up. We're to have a striking way of life in our relationships in the church. And now in verse nine, although it certainly does continue to apply to our relationships with one another in the church, I think Peter here is more specifically addressing our relationships with others in the world in verse nine. And in particular, you see, he's focusing on how to respond when you face suffering for the sake of Christ. That's pretty much what his whole letter is about. He's writing to Christians who are facing suffering because of their identification with Jesus. So how do you respond He's asking, when others mock you or ridicule you or treat you unfairly or unjustly because of your identification with Jesus, because you belong to Christ. He tells us, verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. this would be striking, would it not? What's our typical response when someone insults us or treats us unfairly? I think it's one of two things, I think. We either want to retaliate and get back at that person and insult them back, or it's a little more comfortable to to take this approach where instead of insulting them right to their face in the moment, you just hold it back and then you insult them to everybody else around you after you leave, right? Or... We can sometimes when we face opposition, when we face suffering, when, when others are are coming against us, we can kind of have a the attitude of the stoic. The the stoics were ones who just their philosophy was, you know, we're just gonna grin and bear it, basically, and just retreat from the situation altogether. But this response is different from the both of those, is it not? Not retaliation, not retreating, but entering in and actively blessing. That person, to not speak ill of that person, whether to their face or behind their back, but to show kindness to them as much as is possible to seek peace with them. And in verse 9, Peter goes on to give the reason that we do that, the reason we bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We're called to bless to obtain a blessing. Now, Peter is not saying that we obtain the blessing of God, that we obtain the blessing of eternal life by how we live. That's not what he's saying, because the opening of his letter makes that very clear. Listen to how he starts his letter after his greeting, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you And is it up to you on your own to get there? No, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You can't read those verses and think, well, I earned God's favor by by my good works and how I live. It's God's mercy, it's God's power. No, what Peter is saying here, he's just simply saying that, that God's power is at work within you now to make you more like Jesus. It's only by the mercy of God the Father through the resurrection power of his son Jesus Christ brought into your life by the Holy Spirit that you are born again. That you become a child of the Father. And as a child of the Father, you have an inheritance waiting for you. You have nothing less than a resurrection body of your own. In a renewed world, in the presence of Jesus himself, that's your inheritance that's waiting for you. And what guarantees that you're gonna get there? God's mercy, God's power at work within you now. And so that power is just getting you ready for it. That's what he's saying. Saying one day you're gonna be completely conformed to the image of Christ. And so why wouldn't you just get ready for that day now? Because God's power is at work within you to make you like Jesus, to conform you to his image, to get ready for that day and this is hard. The Christian life is hard. It's difficult. But he's saying it's the way to true happiness. It's the way to true happiness, to true blessing. Peter's saying, do you want to be happy? Look at the language he uses in verse 10 when he quotes Psalm 34. He says, do you want to love life? Is there anybody in here that would answer no to that question? He doesn't ask, do you love life? He says, do you want to love life? I think everybody would answer yes to that question. Do you want to love life? Do you want to see good days? Yeah, I do. Now stop stop for a minute and think about that question. How how do you answer that question? Do you want to love life? Do you want to see good days? Yes. Yeah, of course. Then make as much money as possible. And spend it on what you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Find the love of your life. Travel the world, see the world. Drop out of school and play Fortnite all day, whatever it is. I don't know how you would answer that question. But what's Peter's answer from Psalm 34? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Does that sound like the way to happiness? It doesn't sound like it to us, does it? Doesn't sound that fun or fulfilling. Think about it this way. Have you ever thought, just, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Is it really worth it? Is it worth it to be here this morning, worshiping God and spending time with God's people? Is it really worth it to raise my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Because it's just so hard. Was it worth it for the Christians in Sri Lanka to gather on Easter morning and worship God? Was it worth it for them? One of the Christian women who spoke to others about the bombings, her husband, Ramesh, was killed by a bomb as he was preventing the bomber from coming into the place of worship. And you ask her, is it worth it for you to follow Jesus and lose your husband? And this is a true happiness. I mean, there are tears in it. That's the point. This life is so full of sorrow and frustration and tears and anguish. And the Christian life, even more so, Peter's writing his whole letter to prepare you for that. Can you find true happiness in that? She thought so. I love my Jesus. I love my Jesus. That's what she said. She's in in anguish. She's in tears, but she's saying it's worth it. I love my Jesus. I love my Jesus. He's just saying, yes, it's worth it. Stick with it. This is the way to happiness, following Christ, even though it may not feel or look like it in the moment. Striking relationships with one another in the church unity, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, humility, striking in our relationships and the world, the ability to bless even when you're being cursed. So how do we get there? How do we get there? And we've already seen this, but I just want to emphasize it again. How do we get there? This is important. The Bible never gives us commands to obey without also giving us the power to obey them. I'm going to say that again. The Bible never gives us commands to obey without also giving us the power to obey them. It's a well-worn illustration. Preachers use it all the time, and I'm going to use it because it's a good one. The Bible never lays down railroad tracks for us to show us how to live without also giving us the fuel for the engine to move along those tracks. He never just gives us the railroad tracks. This is how you're going to live. This is the path to joy, to happiness, following my commands, and leaves us there at the beginning of the track. No, he gives us the fuel. He gives us the fuel for the engine. So what's the fuel? What's the power? What moves us forward? Peter points to it all in this letter. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We've already seen that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. That's how he started the letter. He's reminded us of it in chapter 2. Where in the world are you going to get the ability to endure suffering, to endure a difficult situation, to have the, the power to resist retaliation, to resist gossip, to resist just giving up? Verse 21, because Christ suffered for you. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Christ endured the judgment of God for sin in your place on the cross, and that's the power that enables you to endure in your suffering. Christ remained silent to bear your sins, and this is the power that enables you not to speak an ill word against someone. The power of the cross. So Peter's already pointed us to the power of the gospel, and he goes to it again in this section, in chapter 3. The conclusion of this section, in in chapter 3, verse 18, if you have your Bible, look there. If not, just listen. For Christ suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So how are we gonna grow in like-mindedness? How are we gonna grow in sympathy, in brotherly love, in compassion, in humility? Well, Peter tells us, Christ died to bring you to God and to bring you to one another. It's nothing less than the death of Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's brought us to God and brought us to one another. All of these describe Christ, do they not? He was the ultimate servant. He's the one who sympathizes with us in our greatest need and weakness. He's the one who became our brother in love by taking on frail human flesh and becoming like us in every respect except for sin. He's the one whose bowels of mercy, whose compassion, his affection was such a powerful river flowing in him that it overflowed for him to take action and walk up the hill and to carry his cross, and to stay there in your place. It's his humility to think of your interests before his own, to think of you as more significant than yourself. Are you more significant than Jesus? No. (laughs) Of course not. That's not the point, but he thought of you as more significant than himself. He did that for you. Can you not do it for someone else when that power is at work within you? You see, all that God calls you to be and do in your own relationships, as difficult as that is, as we read earlier in the confession of sin, it's difficult for our friends and closest friend, families, is it not? How much more for our enemies and those that annoy us or rub us the wrong way? All that he calls you to be and do, Christ has been and done it on your behalf. And that's the power that enables you to do it when you see what he's done for you. Last week on Easter Sunday, Archie gave you a list of the reasons the resurrection matters for you right now. So I'm gonna give you one more today. i to give you a bonus. Verse 18, Christ was resurrected, made alive in the spirit, Peter says. Think about that. It's the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And if you are trusting in Jesus, what is it that you have living in you right now? The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, which means it's not just any fuel, it's not just any power. It's resurrection power. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God and gave him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very power that is going to unite all things in him in heaven and earth. The very power that we're gonna see one day explode into everlasting light and joy and life and happiness. That's the power that's in you right now as you sit in this pew this morning, if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, the resurrection power of Christ in your own life, and what's it designed to do? To show that humility and that love and that service and that compassion, that humility of Christ. Christ living in you. And this we pray, will be striking. We'll make people take notice. We'll turn their heads. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that the power of the cross and the resurrection by the Holy Spirit would be at work in us, in our relationships with one another, and with the world. We acknowledge our weakness and our frailty, and we need your power and your mercy to obey this teaching, to believe it and to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is a prayer. To that end, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. Let's stand as we close.